All right. Grab your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And this evening we're in verses 8 through 12. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the day, pardon me, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Lord, we pray for illumination. Your word says that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear, and so we ask, Lord, that these truths would impact us, would be buried within our hearts, would be brought up into our minds, would form and change the people that we are, Lord. We thank you for giving us these gifts of understanding and the ability to believe these truths, Lord, because apart from that, we do have no hope. So, Lord, we pray that you would lead and guide our thinking tonight. May our affections be that, Lord, that we leave here knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. In your name, amen. Well, we're still in the middle of this lengthy discussion by the writer of Hebrews on the topic of faith. To remind you, the argument is this. If up until this point, you Hebrew believers who are, because of persecution and difficulty, feeling the pressure to go back to Judaism, haven't been persuaded with everything up to this point, let me remind you that all of the people who you extol as heroes of the faith, who you, when you were in Judaism, looked up to as objects and as people of great faith, as illustrations of great faith. If you go back to that, you're abandoning the very thing they had faith in. So if you go back to the thing that you think was going to make life easier for you, you're abandoning the very thing that they believed and they trusted in. So he's going through this list and recounting all of these people had faith in God through the things that they went through. And if they had this kind of faith, 
and you don't think you can handle it, well, what are you going to turn to? God is the one who has saved you. God is the one who has brought you into his kingdom. God is the one who did this, not just for you, but for all of these people that Judaism upholds and looks at. So if you leave this faith now, you're going back to something inferior that in fact can't actually save. Now, faith is an interesting thing. It's interesting because even in... Our society is rapidly secularizing as it is. Faith is still something that is held up to be a good attribute. It's only up until very, very recently that politicians have begun to abandon the concept that they are believers. Up until very, very recently, they would still say they go to church. They would still go with their Bibles and hold them up and they would go and shake hands of congregants all over the country and they would want to be identified as people of faith with people of faith because, of course, that would garner them votes. So faith, even in our culture, is still something today, now, that is lifted up and held up as a good moral attribute or quality. But let's be honest. The faith that most people have is a faith maybe in name only. Or maybe this. Maybe it's faith with a different definition. Right? I remember talking with a guy there at the mini storage place I used to work at. and He would come in routinely. Nice enough guy. I would have my Bible out oftentimes or a theology book or something like that. And we would get to talking about it. And he would always come in and he would always not lead with, but very quickly get to, oh, well, I'm a Christian too. And then he would tell me some of the most outlandish and bizarre things that he believed. And it was evident to me that he didn't believe in Christ. Things like Jesus was just a man just like we are. Just like all the teachers of religion throughout the millennia of history have been. He pointed us in the right direction. God used him to get us pointed in the right direction so that we could benefit fellow humanity. And of course, he's denying a lot of things. The deity of Christ. He's denying the virgin birth. He's denying the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He's denying our faith in him as the object of our salvation. Our redemption is what in fact saves us. In his mind, it was we are an altruistic people as Christians. And so we just need to follow Christ's example and do good to fellow men. And in doing that, God will credit us with righteousness and bring us into his heaven. So I would point out, often... (laughs) What you're saying is not Christianity. What you're saying is not historically at all something that any Christian throughout history would identify as Christianity. You're denying the very things that make you a Christian. But yet even at the end of that, he would still say, I have faith, therefore I'm a Christian. I believe, therefore I'm a Christian. He had this, what? sentimental attachment 
to a vague notion of Christianity that he wasn't willing to give up. So his concept of faith was a concept of, I identify with this because I get good feelings when I hear that word or think those thoughts, right? Europe is, especially the UK, is ripe with this today, where they will just race through the year as secular as can possibly be, but yet when it comes to Christmas time, you'll see all of the atheists coming out and even singing Christmas carols, singing about Jesus Christ being born, because it gives them a good feeling about their past. It gives them a good feeling and memories from their youth. That faith is not a faith that saves. What would we call that? Maybe superficial faith, maybe a feelings-based faith, maybe something like that. Something based upon not a trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, but a belief in some amorphous truths that you can ply and kind of mold to shape what fits you. What fits you. There's another kind of faith that is wrong that we would not classify as accurate with what especially the book of Hebrews is writing out, and that would be credulity, right? Faith or trust in something kind of despite the evidence to the contrary, okay? Now, in this category, we can easily understand how people believe and hope in all kinds of things that aren't true. In fact, No, I'm not going to say that because I don't want to spoil it for your kids in terms of Christmas say and Santa Claus say (laughs) and him being something else. But let's go this direction so I don't ruin something for somebody somewhere along the line. There are all kinds of people who when they get ill, they get sick, They try all kinds of medical procedures in order to get well. In fact, in the Bible we find this, right? That woman with that issue of blood for 12 years, it says that she spent all of her life savings, all of her money going to all the real doctors and the quack doctors. Okay, that's a paraphrase. But going to everybody she could find in order to try to find healing and could find none. And there are all kinds of people today that will go through cancer treatments and then when they aren't healed from their cancer via the medical treatments, they'll go to some kind of shaman witch doctor off in the boonies of Indonesia or something, right? I think personally of Andy Kaufman, that comedian from the 70s and early 80s who when he got cancer, he tried everything and couldn't find it. And so he went off into Eastern Asia to try to find this one faith healer. And as he was watching him, he saw that it was fake what he was doing. And he just laughed at him and went and died just a short time later. Credulity, faith in something that there's no reason to have faith in it. Faith in something that there's just no reason to. We're accused of this kind of faith quite frequently, aren't we? Well, you can't even prove there's a God. Well, you can't even know those things. And the answer, of course, that the good Bible-believing born-again Christian will go, of course we can. Of course we can believe in these things. We have all kinds of ample reasons to believe in these things, but it doesn't matter the evidence that I give you because you can't believe these things even though I give you all of this evidence. But we believe, and we do have plenty of evidence for why we believe the things we do. 
But there goes even a step further. Let's say that, that it isn't just credulity, it isn't just some superficial faith, but it's you just are very optimistic. You have a very positive outlook. And so you come to church, you hear a message, and it just motivates you and pumps you up with positivity so that you can go out into the world and you can live in a way that you would believe would be pleasing to God because it's a way of positivity that's going to bring goodness to people people around them. Now, there's all kinds of Christians that maybe wouldn't use those exact words, but that's exactly how they're living. They're not going to church to hear the gospel preached to them so that they're confronted with their sin and their unrighteousness so that they can respond by repentance and trust in Christ once again renewed in the grace and mercy that he gives us so that we no longer bear the wrath of God but instead he did and now we come with (coughs) a righteousness that is not our own before the very throne of God worshiping and rejoicing him that he would bring us into his heaven. Two very different messages that people come to church to hear. Do you come to church to hear about you? And how good you are or how good you can be. How if you do these certain things, this will help you out in life. Don't misunderstand me. There's all kinds of practical things in scripture, but they're not in a vacuum. And when preachers, I think a lot of them well-intentioned, get up and they preach a lot of practical messages because, let's face it, they preach well. I can get discernible results. I can know how effective a message was if I preach six weeks on tithing and money management and all of a sudden I see the tithes go up. It's discernible. If I preach a six-week series about serving in the community and we have eight booths set up outside of the sanctuary, places that you can sign up to serve in the community or in the church, and at the end of those eight weeks, those lists are relatively full with people committed to serve, I can discern and see my message was effective. Whereas when I preach the gospel and I preach faith and I preach trust in Jesus Christ, there's not really a a meter for me to determine how effective that particular sermon was. So well-intentioned, I think preachers for the most part are getting up, they're preaching the Bible, and they want to see that it's having effect on their people. And once they do that, it perpetuates the cycle. Well, I'll keep preaching these kind of messages because I've already seen they work. And all they're doing in a lot of cases is producing Pharisees. Producing people who look really good on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. Who are willing to jot their name down on a servanthood list. They're willing to go out into their community and proclaim a positive message. They're willing to go on the march for life and stand up for the women's resource clinic. They're willing to go down to the Jesus Center and serve a meal. And those things are good and right and don't misunderstand me. We're not opposed to those things. We're opposed to doing those things for those things' sake. What we should be people and what Christianity is about, what faith is. Faith is not done in a vacuum. It's not done in a power of positive thinking kind of way. It's not done simply out of feelings and 
and a good connection with the past. It's not done out of a sense of just grasping at something, even though I'm not sure. It is us being assured of the things that are hoped for because we have evidence of things not seen, right? That's the definition we've been given here in the book of Hebrews. And so now we come to the section in the book where that definition is applied to Abraham. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of people in Abraham's day when Abraham decided, I'm going to move. In a day where you really didn't do that. That was a long, long trip that Abraham made to go from Ur all the way up around the fertile, would have been this way if you're looking at it, all the way up around the fertile crescent, all the way down over into what we know modern day as Palestine or Israel. That's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of a journey. In fact, it was a journey that Abraham's dad died along the way. He never made it there. But Abraham was called by God. In fact, let's look back at it real quick. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. Look back at actually chapter 11, verse 31 there. Terah took Abram and his son and Lot and the son of Haran, his grandson Sarai and his daughter-in-law and his son Abram's wife. And they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. That's Abraham's father. Now... The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So... Abram went as the Lord had told him. So here we see in the very beginning, we see Abraham's, or Abram at this particular point, we see his faith. Now, faith, as excellent as Abraham's faith was, he still couldn't claim it as his own. One of the things that we read about a story like this particular one is it, it might be easy to say, well, I mean, golly, how hard would it have been for Abraham to leave when God audibly spoke to him and told him, go and do these kind of things? I mean, really? Well, we have God actually doing all kinds of things throughout Scripture and people not believing it. A great case in point is in the very next book, the book of Exodus. When God says to let the people go and to prove that what Moses was saying was from the very mouth of God himself, God supplied all of these plagues and all of these horrible things that came on the nation of Egypt and yet they dug in their heels and refused to submit to what God had said. So simply because 
somebody has a miracle performed in front of them or somebody hears directly from God himself is not a guarantee that they will believe because faith is something miraculous, which we've already seen the last couple of weeks. And Abraham's faith is no different. Now, we might say as Christians today, and maybe the Hebrews might have even said something like this in their particular day and age, is saying, well, now, why doesn't God do that very same thing? Here we are, a congregation of his people. He says that he loves us. He is allowing this persecution to take place. So why doesn't he show up in our midst and tell us every little thing's going to be all right? Why doesn't he do that? Where is he at? He did it for these people. Why doesn't he do it for us? But of course, remember the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. In the past days, God spoke audibly. God spoke through prophets. God spoke in various different ways. But he has in these last days spoken through whom? His son. He has spoken through his son. Jesus Christ, you see, is the last and final word that anybody who follows God and wants to be a person who is a faithful follower of him needs. We do not need anything more than Christ. This is one of the reasons why it's so easy for us to reject modern day miracles and signs and words from the Lord and all of this kind of stuff because we understand and we see that Christ is the final word. We don't need anything more than what Christ said. If he said it and we can find it in the pages of scripture, then we should be settled with faith in that message itself. We shouldn't be looking for, we shouldn't need anything more than that. So scripture is given to us. We don't need an unrolling of the sky and God looking down and saying, hello, Joel, kind of thing. (laughs) Because we have his word. And he said hello to Joel and lots of other things here in his word. So let's get, all right, we don't want the text to get away from me here. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. God chose Abraham out of the midst of all of the people who were alive in the world in that day and that age. Now, it is interesting that he is in the lineage of all of the people who were great faithful followers of God of old. He's in the lineage of Enoch. We've already looked at him. He's in the lineage of Noah. We've already looked at him. He's in the lineage of Methuselah. We didn't really look at him, but he was one of the faithful followers of God as well. But Abraham lived, and he's the, what, great-grandson of Noah. Noah might have still been around. We don't know at this particular point. But for whatever reason, God called Abram from this place and told him to move to another place. And when God called him to do it, he got up and he did it. Now, there were several points throughout the journey of the life of Abram where he struggled. One of the places, I think, look at Genesis chapter 15. And 
Now, we, not too long ago, we looked at this character, Melchizedek, who appears in Genesis 14. If you remember the story, one of the things that happened is that Abram rescued Lot and all of Lot's family and all of the cities that had been captured along with Lot, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who were infamous for their sin and wickedness. When Abram rescued them and defeated the kings who had stolen them, the king of Sodom promised to give him all kinds of wealth. And remember, Abram said, I don't even want a sandal strap from you, lest you say, you're the one who made Abram rich. I'm going to trust the Lord. Remember that? So we come to chapter 15. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I like to... I'm going to use an R.C. Sprolism here. I like to read the Bible existentially. Now, I'm no existentialist philosophically, but what I want to do when I read the Bible is I want to put myself in there and try to think these thoughts as if I was there in the book. I want to think, why does this happen? Why is this in this context here? What is this taking me from and taking me to? What's the connection with all this? And if I can, I want an emotional connection along with a mental connection with what's going on in the text. So after these things, verse 1 of chapter 15, the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Now, stop right there. When does God say fear not? When you are afraid. What's Abram afraid of here? He has just defeated a ten-nation confederate army who has conquered a mighty city-state in and of itself, Sodom and Gomorrah. And has captured them and taken them away. Abram with his 600 men chased this army down and annihilated them. And took all of the spoils from war back that was theirs. Gave everything back that was Sodom and Gomorrah's. And sent them on their way. What in the world at this point does Abram have to fear? This guy is pretty bad. (laughs) He's wealthy. He's mighty. He's a warrior. What in the world is Abram at this point fearing? I am your great, or pardon me, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In there is a clue into what Abraham was fearing. One, he felt vulnerable. He was afraid of retaliation, wasn't he? Why else does God say, I am your shield? I am your protection, right? Shield is a defensive, a defensive instrument. I'm blocking something from attacking me. God here is saying, I am your defense. You don't need to fear these nations around you, which you can imagine they would, right? I mean, when somebody's tough and knocks out the bully, somebody tougher comes along and wants to knock out that guy, right? So you can imagine there's some fear there with Abram. He challenge this he he's a great mighty man there's going to be somebody who comes along and feels threatened by abram wants to conquer him yet god also continues and doesn't end there your reward shall be very great at this point abram had taken 
an inferior piece of the land and had begun raising his family, raising his livestock, raising his, you know, all of his wealth there. And he didn't have what Lot had. Lot had more than he did. That was part of the problem and why he, they had to separate earlier on in the book. But here God says, I am your reward. Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. God, thank you that you're my defense. Thank you that you're going to provide wealth to me and be my reward. But I don't have any kids to give it to. Where's the heritage? You said that you were going to take me from Ur of the Chaldees, bring me to this land that I knew not, and you were going to make of me a great nation. Well, Lord, I've done A, I've done B. Where's the fulfillment? Where's C? Do you see? So God says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look, look up at heaven, Abram. Number the stars if you're able to number them. He said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and accounted it to him as righteousness. So Abram obeyed when he was called to go out of a place, go out of a place, go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. So he went out not knowing where he was going. And when he arrived there, he was promised that land and promised an heir that would come and be father again of multiple multiple people by faith abram went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land living in tents and then here in our text it says with isaac and jacob they're just thrown in there we'll come back to them again them again later on so we're just going to skip over them here tonight but look what he look what happens verse 10 for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder was God. Abram, verse 9, lived in tents. Abram looked forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. When God took him out of that tent and said, look up into the sky, Abram, he was saying something more than just see all of the stars That's all of the kids you're going to have. He was saying something more than that. He was taking him outside and he was showing him the entire universe before his eyes. Not that he was like flying him around the universe. Nothing weird like that. But he showed him those stars and he said, look, all of this was going to be yours. And he understood that. Romans chapter 4 tells us, let me read you this little passage that, you know, oftentimes, so many times, people when they're reading through Romans, read over a passage just like this, but it's so important. Verse, the whole thing is good, so for extra credit, read Romans 4, okay? 
But for our sake right now, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, right there, nothing that we read in Genesis said that Abram is heir of the world. Where does that concept come from? I think it comes from that Genesis 15 experience where God takes him outside and shows him the vastness of the sky and says, look at all of these stars. It's all going to be yours someday. And the implication is you're going to have this many children as well, but everything is promised to you, not just a family, not just property, but it's all going to be yours. You're going to be heir of things that you can't even imagine. And the vastness and the scope of it, Abraham, is magnificent because I, in giving this to you and displaying that I am the God who keeps promise. And it comes through the righteousness of faith. And that's exactly what we saw Abram's response there in Genesis 15, wasn't it? He believed God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. You see, Abram, when he went out there, he saw something bigger now than the tents that he was dwelling in. He was content to remain in tents because... He knew that God was promising something so much more vast, so much more grand, that he can see that those foundations, that city that he's been promised, has a builder and maker that is God himself. Look at Roman or Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Now as you're turning there, I'm under no illusions. I don't think Abraham had a revelation along the lines that John did here. Don't misunderstand me that I'm saying this. But I do think there is some sense where he saw in his mind's eye, by faith, apprehended it, that was so much more vast and superior to where he was at that he was able to trust the Lord with everything. When Jerusalem came down, let's back up. No, let's not. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke and he said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with gates all over it. It had gates on the outside, gates all over it. It had great foundations. It was super huge. It looked real beautiful. That's the sum up. But I read right over one thing, and I hope you didn't miss it as I read over it. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. See, the city that's foundations are made by God is not a big, huge, giant cube the size of the moon. God bless dispensationalists. It's not. It is the bride. It is the people of God. 
What is this city that Abraham believed and trusted in? It's all of God's people, God's kingdom, and God owns everything. It's all of God's people gathered together before the very throne of God himself. In the presence of God, if you continue to read Revelation 21, it says there's no more sun anymore. There doesn't need to be because God himself is there and his brightness radiates everywhere and there's no need for a sun. There's no darkness. There's no night anymore because we all dwell with God. Remember the covenantal promise that exists from Genesis to Revelation is I will be your God and you will be my people. The promise given to Abraham that he believed by faith was you are my God and you've promised to out of me make a great people that will be your people. That's the Abrahamic covenant And that's the covenant that when we read the life of Abraham, we should marvel with. Hebrew believers, if you abandon this and go back to Judaism, you think you're going back to Father Abraham, but you are excluding yourself from the very thing that he believed in. You can't do that. You can't go there. If you do, you're abandoning, you're cutting yourself off from the very means of salvation that Abraham himself believed and trusted in. He believed it by faith. He saw that the tent he was living in right now was fine. This is fine. Why? Because there's a kingdom coming. And this kingdom is going to be a marvelous kingdom full of God's people. And he's promised to use me as a means by which he is going to be glorified for all eternity as he brings this kingdom to pass. God is the designer. God is the builder. God is the initiator. He is the promiser. He is the one who will accomplish everything that he set out to do. And Abraham believed it. Beloved. Do we today? (laughs) Abraham believed this marvelous promise. And we know there was lapses in his faith, right? I mean, he's kind of rascally in certain parts. (laughs) But yet he always believed that God was going to accomplish those things that he promised he was going to do. And so he is extolled and held up for us today as the father of faith because he was the one who saw from God, this great and glorious kingdom of God that God was going to establish through him and through his kids, through his children. Let's stop there because I'm, let's just stop there and we'll come back and pick it up next week. Lord, Lord, when we think about these covenants that, that we find here in the pages of Scripture, I, I pray, Lord, that we would not just read over them lightly, that we would take them and be compelled to press on with you, Lord, like Abraham was. There in that night, he prayed, Lord, and he prayed a prayer of fear. He prayed a prayer of anxiety. He prayed a prayer that was one that was doubting, honestly, in some ways. And Lord, you showed up and you told him you were his shield, you were his reward, and that every single promise that you said you would do, you would accomplish. And you showed him that great and grand, glorious vision of the kingdom to come. 
Lord, the new covenant that we stand in and stand upon the promises of is so much greater than the covenants of old because we don't just see shadows and types and foreshadowings and things to come, but we see the fulfillment, your glorious son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, by faith, walk out of these doors trusting you loving you, knowing you better than we did when we came in because of your great and glorious covenantal promises to us. Lord, you are faithful. You will always be faithful. And we love you for it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name.